Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the DLG Guardian Mindset Podcast. And today, I'm very honored to have with me uh, Louis Von Kleem. And, uh, and did I say that last name correctly, Von? Ah, you nailed it. I've only known you for long enough that I've screwed it up so much times that I actually got it right. Uh, Louis, who we call Von, uh, is the Director of Consulting Division and Executive Editor for For Science Institute. Now, Von, what you don't know, unless you've watched some of the podcasts, is that I always like to start with a, uh, I like to personalize it a little bit, so I always like to start with a quote that I think represents the person that I'm interviewing or the the benefit. So I never tell you it beforehand, as you can tell. Uh, and so I picked a Ronald Reagan quote for you, which I thought was very, very valuable, and that says, the greatest leader is not necessarily the one who does the greatest things. He is the one that gets the people to do the greatest things. And what I really liked about, you know, what you've done over the years and, and when I met you, uh, I think initially when we were in the advanced uh, specialist class together and, and then you coming on with four science uh, um, and your writings uh, through um, you know, through the internet and through social media, some of your articles are phenomenal and, and they really, they really push people to think outside the box. And so, uh, I'd like to start with just welcoming you to the DLG, uh, guardian mindset podcast. Oh, well, Hey, thank you so much. I'm hey, it's an honor to be here, Eric. I appreciate it. So, uh, Vaughn, uh, has, if you look at his bio extensive experience and like you all know now, because most of the people that I put on this podcast they come from multifacets of expertise, and I think that's what makes them valuable. Um, and in Vaughn's case, as both a police officer, an educator, an attorney, um, and you know, service to our country uh, in the military, in 20 years of, of committed expertise, um, I, I think he's got a, a significant value to bring to the table. And and I know that if you listen to the podcast, you think there's a lot of us out there that have those expertise, but there really isn't. Um, and unfortunately for us that we are all happy to call those that do friends and can interact with each other. Um, so Vaughn, I would ask you, um, to just give a little bit about yourself to the listeners and your law enforcement career and kind of how you got to your position, um, um, at for science. Yeah, well, I appreciate it. It's, uh, it was not intentional. I will tell you that I was it never is, right. is it? <laughs> so, uh, I started out in policing in, uh, well, probably 1990, um, doing, you know, parole investigations. I worked at a jail and then I worked, uh, for the Topeka police department from 93 to 03. Uh, most of that full time, um, I did everything. It was a pretty standard experience. I worked, uh, patrol. I worked gangs and drugs, worked narcotics for a while. Um, street level narcotics. Uh, I ran our defense tactics program. So I was really involved with martial arts back then, probably, you know, it was a little pre Brazilian jiu-jitsu, although that came in a little bit later. So I started playing in that world as well. Um, the, I, I met Dr. Lewinsky during that period where Do, uh, Lexus Artwall, Dr. Lewinsky were doing the, uh, I think it was the Aslet Roadshow or portions of the Aslet American Society for Law Enforcement Trainers. For the You know you just dated yourself, right? Yeah, no, I, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and, the and, good part, yeah. there's not many of us that know the date. That's the key, but that's the best part. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, they, uh, so I was doing patrol work and I ran our DT program and then, uh, uh, one of the prosecutors is a little bit humorous for your police audience. One of the prosecutors who I was in court for, uh, 
narcotics case, I was trying to explain why I had probable cause to search a car. And the prosecutor said, after you go to law school, you can tell me how to do my job. I said, hold on a second. I'll be right back. So <laughs> <how I> was. <laughs> it was, it was no more inspired than that. Uh, I went to law school during the day while working narcotics at night. Um, and then uh, 9-11 hit. So I had to make a decision how I was going to continue to serve. I joined the military uh, as a JAG officer. And immediately, like, uh, because I didn't know any better, I submitted, <laughs> you'll find this funny in military. <laughs> I submitted my CV and resume to my assignments branch and specifically requested that I be allowed to teach at the military police school down at Fort Leonard Wood. Um, which for those who aren't familiar with the military, you just don't do that. You're brand new. For me, it was a captain or first lieutenant, actually, uh, making my case that I should be assigned to advanced police training. Um, and they looked at my resume and what I had done up to that date. And they said, sure, sounds good. And so <laughs> first few, three, three years, I just got to teach CID and MPs uh, across all the branches. Uh, so it was an amazing start um, and started to get a reputation for police practices, expertise, use of force expertise in the military. Um, ultimately, after a career, I, I did some prosecution while I was there. Of course, military prosecution, ran a, went, ran a prosecution office. I was also a special assistant U.S. attorney where I got to prosecute federal cases, mostly sexual assault cases. Um, all of that's funny only in that I was only supposed to be in the military for three years. That was the plan. I'd go back to the <laughs> That's always the funny part, right? Yeah. Um, hmm. the, the cool thing was because of that reputation I, I was generating, I continued to stay involved in that work. I went to the Force Science Certification course, uh, eventually the Force Science uh, Advanced Specialist course. Um, but I was also assigned at the Pentagon during that same period of time where I actually got to write use of force policy at the, for DOD and, and the Army. Um, and I just kept getting put in these, in these really weird niche specialty assignments that allowed me to continue to play in the police use of force world. Um, ultimately, though, what was really cool was the, uh, I, was now, I was now really deeply looking at police use of force domestically, meaning in the United States, right, CODIS. Also internationally, looking at our uh, our interoperability, our use of force interoperability um, with our allies. Um, and I had to start to really deep dive how our, what we call rules for use of force in the military versus rules of engagement, right? So rules for use of force is what you imagine pol civilian policing have to engage in. Well, it started to get really convoluted because a lot of our operations internationally were using both rules for use of force and rules of engagement. And right. we got to study at the Pentagon how those, how those were different and how those affected the ability of our allies to operate with us. Um, and of course, that analysis required me to pull in all the domestic use of force law as it applied and really be very clear where it didn't. So. Um, I recognize those are really unique experiences. I don't know anybody else who had the, the, the opportunity to do those types of jobs. And it just happened. I just kept finding myself at the right place at the right time. And I retired. Actually, my last job was a terrorism criminal investigations unit, but I was the senior legal advisor at CID um, and also was the legal advisor for the Protective Services Battalion, which is the Army's, uh, loosely speaking, the Army's... Uh, uh, secret service, right? They do the protection work for their, I think it was the top seven or eight, um, of their, of their dignitaries. So 
that was how I ended my career and I couldn't have ended it any better. It was, it was, uh, it was fun to get back to actually teaching cops again, use of force decision-making. So that's a little bit around and I retired and joined force science. Well, that's huh. a, you know, I mean, the key is, is that a lot of the people that are listening, one thing they can take from people like you and me and all those guests that we have is that, uh, what I love to hear you say, and I tell this to my son all the time in the military, is uh, uh, say yes to opportunity. <laughs> That's the. Would you agree with that? Uh, no matter what you're doing, say yes to opportunity. Yeah, that kind of cuts <laughs> cuts across to never volunteer for anything in the military. <laughs> you're, you're right. Uh, you won't. Yeah, you won't know the benefit till it's done. And there's a lot of jobs in the military, and I've heard. I didn't make this up, but at the Pentagon, especially, the uh, the phrase was, "It's a job." you're really glad you used to have. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, and then, you know, we've all gotten very uh, valuable. The fact that you had found your way to force science at Dr. Bill Lewinsky and, and um, we're going to have another podcast with him uh, specifically and about his start. And, and I'm a big fan of force science Institute and, and just like you, uh, a certified uh, and an advanced specialist and, and really uh, value our relationship here with at DLG with the Four Science Institute and the just the amazing, um, the amazing research and advice that's given. So the key for us as we go through is that, um, you know, how would you, how do you classify your current job at Four Science Institute and the value that that brings um, to law enforcement in general? Yeah, so I'm currently the director of the consulting division. Um, my, I have a couple of other hats. One is the director of the community relations, which is basically just media engagements, which is critically important for us because there's so much misinformation out there. But, um, I teach, I teach the uh, executive leaders course and the, the attorneys course, which we've, we've titled, uh, beyond reasonable, uh, <laughs> and basically is that for attorneys are beyond reasonable or how to yeah, be yeah, reasonable? Yeah. Yeah, so it, was, it works both ways, right? We want to get beyond the cops must be reasonable. Um, and if that's your full understanding of use of force law, there's more There's more we should be discussing, right? And then, of course, we talk about human performance. I bring those up when I say I love teaching those courses. But I would say if you look at, at the the experience you had and and where our, our experience is parallel, we've been on the street. We've been policy attorneys, we've been um, litigators, we've been, uh, you know, trainers, and we, and, and human performance, uh, uh, for science trained attorneys. Um, and what that does for you, I, I, I'm sure the same it does for me is allows us to connect a lot of dots that our use of force guys might not see in terms of how, how that impacts the law or how our attorneys might not see how their legal arguments may not be reflecting the reality of human performance or the limitations of human performance. And so as much as I like being on the podium and as much as I like teaching, and I still get to do that. Um, I've landed as the director of the consulting division because what I'm realizing is for these litigators, and that means litigation consulted, policy consulted. What I'm realizing is these litigators pre-indictment, pre-filing, um, they don't know what they don't know. They don't know how to evaluate a use of force case. They don't know um, police practices deep enough. They don't know human performance and human factors deep enough. They don't understand the, how law changes from coast to coast, as you well know. Right. Jurisdictions 
handled gram factors differently. Some think they're the most important factors. Some think they're three among a totality. In some cases, they don't even mention the gram factors. And I know the Supreme Court's even had a couple of use of force cases where gram factors aren't even mentioned. And so having that sort of sensitivity, what I realized is I want to get our clients very quickly to where they need to be in a use of force evaluation before a case gets filed, before indictments come down. Because once that happens, it is, they can often get very, very entrenched in their positions. And then all the amount of education um, may not be enough to pull that case back. Um, and then we ultimately end up, what we're seeing now is a lot of these, these courtrooms are using the court process um, to evaluate these cases and test these cases and kind of just see how they come out, which isn't fair to anybody involved. No, I mean, you're testing juries and that's not, you know, that's not working effectively. So it, being in this side and now spending all of your time with both the academic application, the legal application, and now, you know, and, and using all your years of experience on, on human performance and in physiological human factor response, what was, what's been the biggest surprise to you in this new position when you talk to um, those individuals who fit under that category, which I love the way you said it, which is they just don't know what they don't know. What is, what's been the, something interesting that you've uh, kind of been like, like the, that you've found through this process? Yeah, let me, let me share a conversation I had after the last um, attorney course I taught. Um, very, very experienced use of force attorneys for this, in this particular class. Um, one, of the, one of the attorneys has been litigating for over 30 years. He's had, he, he expressed to me he had 100, over 100 uh, jury trials, use of force cases. And after we were done, we spent two days. No, actually, that was a one-day course. I spent one day with, this, with these attorneys. And he comes up and he says, if, if I would have had this training um, before, I can think of at least 10 cases where my clients were convicted that would have gone the other way. Now, think about that. That's sad. That's scary. Yeah, I'm, that, that's why... That's why we're doing what we're doing, not to make that sound too, too cliche, but you know, that can't happen. The what information was the issue out about there. What was the issue that he had to get his mind around is just the, you know, a lot of the, one of the things that frustrates uh, me and probably you the same is people see something and they just, you know, they just believe what they see and don't apply any of the human factors to the analysis of that. And is that what the issue was for this guy? Yeah, you know, the, I'll, I'll tell you more generally what the issues were for the class because we had some good feedback. I didn't ask him that question specifically, so I don't want to make, make that up. But the feedback was, as you would imagine, they didn't know that videos are liars. They don't know about the limitations of videos. You know, I, I, I see it. I don't need an expert explain to me what I'm saying. Well, you do, actually. Um, and you need to, and, and so that was a big piece. They didn't understand the limitations of video which we discussed, they didn't understand, um, generically or generally speaking, all the, all of the psychological and physiological and environmental influences that impact perception and impact attention and impact memory. So the things we spend all our time on, right. In the advanced, in the advanced courses, um, were the things that they were like, I didn't even think about that. Um, a, their other feedback was really trying to 
you know, for some of them, they've never heard of, of a systematic approach to defining imminent jeopardy. So some people use ability, opportunity, jeopardy. I, I use intent, ability, means, and opportunity um, because I like, to, I like to differentiate between physical ability and weapon systems. So I, yep, I do yep, that. Yep. And, and I'm very clear about saying imminent jeopardy doesn't require intent a lot of times. Sometimes the underlying conduct itself is sufficient to constitute a threat. So for all those who's, you know, sort of reflexively push back and say, I don't need to prove intent. It's, it's well, it's definitely the hardest thing to prove, but it off, often case, you know, I, I'll admit you don't have to, I mean, somebody's driving recklessly and cars are having to dive into the ditches, get it to get out of their way. Um, you, you have jeopardy regardless of what that driver's intent is. Right. Um, so those were the types of things that they, they hadn't seen. And, and what I do is I, intentionally for the executive leadership course and for the attorney course, I just want them to be able to issue spot. I want them to know when to pull in experts. It's, it's not to replace the, the certification course or the event specialist course, or, or to pretend that you could even do that in a six or 12 hour presentation. Right. Right. But what it does is get them to go, wow, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. And it's start to recognize when they really need to get into the deep waters and, and, and pull some guides into that water with them. So I think that was a lot of it. Um, one of my strategies, you, you probably do this as well. It's, it's somewhat of a marketing strategy, but it's also sort of a, I really want them to understand how, how nuanced and, and, and what a specialty use of force evaluations are. Right. And so I tell them, you know, there's two things we're really going to evaluate. Was the threat assessment reasonable? And then was the response to that threat reasonable? Right. And then we're going to talk about all of the psychological, physiological, and environmental things that can impact the threat assessment. And then I've got a page just listing all of the potential factors. And when they start to see that and they start to see the terms that are associated with each of those factors, if they don't recognize what that term is, what's happening is they're realizing there is a lot more to this that we've ever considered. And ultimately, that's the goal. I want them to, to come to us, come to you, um, come to the experts and have those conversations because these officers, um, uh, you know, they deserve it, right? Yeah. They, deserve, they deserve that. Yeah. And even into that credit is, you know, the Supreme Court's decision in Lombardo on June 28th, 2021. You know, the, it's awesome that you say that because, you know, that was one of the focused things that they said, which is threat assessment. And the, the, the need for force in comparison to uh, the force level of force used and, and, and that in and of itself should tell anybody that it requires analysis, it, you know, it requires that type of analysis. And so, and so obviously we've probably got a lot of people's attention right now and you're the first for science uh, Institute representative that I've had in this show. So, um, and, and a couple of things just for all of you that think that these titles don't mean anything. Um, I will tell you that uh, Vaughn and I had to spend ridiculous amounts of time to get the advanced specialist along with probably hundreds of other people nowadays. But uh, uh, it's like a four-month class with, I think I read more books in advanced, force, in advanced specialist class than I did in law school. Uh, it yeah, doesn't say yeah. much. Um, but but Vaughn, where can, um, where can the officers, you know, start to to see more of what what type of classes are out there and more importantly, get some of your articles and get some of your research that you've been doing if they, if they're intrigued by what they've been hearing so far. Yeah. So yeah, perfect. The force science.org is where we're at right now. One word for science. 
org. And uh, for those who aren't familiar with this, it's F O R C E force, like use of force, force science. Cause I've had people looking for science, <laughs> but it's, it's forcescience.org. And we have a news line, the Force science news. Um, it's free. You can sign up. It'll be delivered to your email. Uh, if you don't like to sign up for things, you go to the website. Um, we try to do it uh, twice a month. We've actually just opened up um, uh, opportunities for freelance writers. We know there's just a ton of talent out there. Um, we want practitioners to write for us who understand. And as Dr. Lewinsky says, they have to have a, a strong curiosity for science. They have to be looking for those those applications. So whether you're a practitioner or you're a researcher who are recognizing the unanswered questions and want to start attacking those questions uh, or want to share research that you've already done with, with the community, you reach out to us. We're currently accepting applications for freelance writers. And frankly, I say accepting applications. Um, I think I have 30 of them right now. <laughs> we can have as many um, yeah. qualified writers as we need. Um, so I love the fact that it's pushing the envelope though, Von, like you want all different, the, you know, the more perspectives that we get, the more issues that we might not even be thinking about that people would bring to the table. Oh, absolutely. And, and I tell you that this, this, the push to, to, oh, I, I hate the word interdisciplinary, but it fits right. To have these interdisciplinary teams where your researchers are talking with your practitioners or talking with your policymakers or talking with your lawyers. Um, maybe you and I can connect a lot of those dots, you know, sitting down because we've worn all those hats, but, but a lot of times they need that team to sit down and say, yeah, you're not thinking about this. So that's a great example of, something we had to contend with last week. That's what the, that's what the field needs. No matter how great the research is, no matter how well written it is, ultimately it's meaningless if there isn't an application for it. And the researchers are not going to very cleanly, neatly, or immediately see the application the way the guy in the interview room will, the guy who's doing the investigation or the, the cop who's doing the traffic stop. Uh, that's one of my favorite things to do is hear these stories about how force science has saved someone's life. Cops, every single class are coming up saying, we changed our training because of what we learned in your courses. Um, and we now have real world examples of cops whose lives were saved because, you know, I'll give you a great example, uh, you know, traffic stops. When you think somebody has a gun in the car, you're not sure. We say something like, show me your hands. And that's pretty typical. Other officers might say, just stop, don't move, which I, I personally like. But what, what they found is everybody who starts to see a weapon come up over and over and over again, cops are trying to outdraw them. They're just, they're intuitively, they see that, oh, that's a gun. I'm supposed to respond with a gun. Well, you know, they, they're not going to win that action reaction fight. Right, um, right. And so everyone now our students know this and so they will go back and they will, well, why are we even standing up there if i really suspect the guy has a weapon why am i still here why am i not moving why am i not and 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 so some agencies are actually saying if you reasonably suspect somebody's got a weapon in the car such that you're saying hey show me your hands mister you probably ought not be there at that at that a pillar that b pillar you need to be back having that conversation with a position of cover and they're getting there very quickly and they're showing um, example after example of where weapons were then actually found in the car and the officers were, you know, back in positions of cover with increasing distance and reaction time. Um, 
Now, I'm not saying that always works. I'm just saying that these guys are being. Yeah, but you're thinking about it. That's the key. That's what that's that's the point that all of us are trying to do is that, you know, if if it's not working or not working well, we have to sit down as groups from different perspectives and figure out how we could make it better. And not one of us has the answers to that. So um, so let me ask you this, get some experience in here, and that is. Um, in the positions that you've held over the years um, and with the philosophy that, that the officers that don't get to go to our training are the ones that are going to listen to this podcast, like, what, do you, what would you have identified as a significant development in policing over the years? Something that, that you, you know, you're now experiencing that maybe you never thought you would experience or that you expected would occur? Um, there's... Well, there's a couple of things that, are, that have not been pleasantly surprised with that have occurred, but I'm trying to think of something positive. So a positive change, I think, is a cultural change. Um, and I have to be careful about this. You remember with our early FTOs, right? It was get in, get out. You need to get in, get out of that domestic. You're not her counselor. You're, you're not there to hold her hand. Um, make a decision, make a decision. Let's go, go, go. And it was this, this bias for action, bias for speed, uh, bias for efficiency. That's and yeah, and, and and over time now we have a, the cultural shift has changed. And I remember even as a as a supervisor, getting showing up to a call, go, hey, hey, let's slow down for a second. Tell me what you got. All right, that's the first. Let's slow down because you can see there's a there's a really heightened sense of urgency, and you're not clearly seeing what that's what's driving that. And so a lot of times you come in as that objective a little bit later. Maybe you weren't involved in the initial, and you're getting collecting information sufficient to to to. to to direct traffic for that particular call, right? Um, but I think culturally now, more departments are getting much more comfortable saying, hey, when you can do something to create pre-contact discretionary time, right? Or even post-contact discretionary time. If you can, if you can engage in tactics that allow you more discretionary time, do that, right? right. Getting in in bias of action and efficient you know, law enforcement investigations doesn't have to be the priority. Um, and that's a good change. Yeah. Right? Slow down and that. work I mean, it through. I, what's that? Slow down and work it through. Yeah. When you can. And I say that and I, and I gotta be careful because there are also cases and we've, we're evaluating one right now where, um, the create space, five positions of cover, slow things down. Um, may have may not have been the the best decisions in that particular case what's happening and we've seen examples of this on some videos where the officers are not closing fast enough they're not putting handcuffs on people who are in that moment complying right You're like hey why are we not securing this guy right and you can start to see that culture of we're gonna sit back we're gonna wait we're gonna negotiate we're gonna de-escalate and then things escalate and now we can all look at that and go, well, why didn't you put handcuffs on that guy when you had the chance? Why didn't you guys close? And we're all remembering tactically and operation of those times where you have to make a decision. Do I, do I press or do I move back? And it really, I, I, I don't ever want to lose my sensitivity that the guy, the, the guy or girl in the arena has to have some discretion and latitude to make those types of calls. And so it's just not always the case that create space, slow down, find positions of cover is the best option. If it becomes, if it becomes sort of formulaic, there's still a lot of discretion. And, um, 
there's a case we're working on right now that I, I love to talk to you about it after it comes to its conclusion. Sure, sure. It really highlights a lot of those factors where everyone's just like, man, this didn't have to end up in a shooting if the officers would have simply just closed with this person and secured them. Like most of our audience will all be able to come up with an example of where they have done that. Yeah. Like get in, get them secured and, uh, and get out. So it's, it's a, it's important to have the, to recognize the culture change that, that slow down is okay. That positions of cover and distance may be the most reasonable thing to do. Um, and, and not to, not to put, uh, you know, not to walk the tightrope, but sometimes a bias for action and, 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 and making deliberate decisions now is the most reasonable thing to do. So well, it's, it's interesting that you bring that up though, Vaughn, because I know you watch a lot of videos like I do in the expert witness world and, and I, I teach at the academy still, so I have a, I get a lot of recruit time. And one of the things I tell them is, yeah, the difficult, which we, we, you know, we don't like to second guess that telling an officer what to do and when to do it. That's they're in the arena. I like the way you said that. Um, and, but I, you know, I, I tell the recruit, I just actually had recruit class on Monday and I was telling them, I'm like, um, I, I'm starting to be the old man that yells at the at the screen as I'm watching the video. Like I'm watching the video and I'm just asking, like, is he under arrest? Yes. Could you make him under arrest? I mean, right. why? You know, and, and, and whether you know the part of this discussion that I asked the recruit class is that you know is it because of confidence? Is it because of fear? Is it because of um, is it because you're afraid of making a mistake? You're afraid of being a YouTube video. What is the reason why this guy, you, you know, why are you trying to negotiate an arrest? He obviously is not interested in being arrested. Um, and you know, a lot of times in my office, they'll laugh at me and they're like, Oh, Eric's yelling at the screen again, because I'm sitting there yelling at the video saying, come on, let's do something. Let's do something. Yeah, yeah. Are you seeing a lot of that? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I hate, I hate that, but it's, I, I've asked the question, are you waiting for him to agree with you? <laughs> oh yeah, you're right. I think I'll put my hands behind my back right now. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, and it's not easy. And I, and you know, I, I, I try to simplify things because we all, we talk to community groups, we talk to attorneys and we talk to cops and we, you know, we, we have to be able to simplify concepts. And so when we talk about policy development or, or, use of force standards and evaluation. I said, there's two minimum, there's two absolutely minimum criteria for a good policy. Um, the first one is that it has to allow an officer to be able to predict the lawfulness of their conduct. Right. And so we, you know, we're, we're, we're used to the concept of void for vagueness. Right. But, right. 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 And the second one is, is it has to be capable of human performance. Right. It can't, it can't be a policy that ex, that the expectations go beyond the, the limitations of, of the human who's, who we're asking to engage in that conduct. And, and that's what I'm seeing. That's, I hope it's a phase, but what I'm seeing right now is officers being held, uh, to these new standards that are, are vague, that there's no way any of us can predict how the review panel is going to uh, look at it later. Um, that, that's the first part. And the second part is, so they can't predict the lawfulness of the economy. And the second one is it's, it's so far, it's expecting so much beyond human performance capabilities and, and not, not the least of which, um, we, or we start to lose, 
what I think is generally accepted in the law enforcement profession. At least I put that in my expert report. So that'd be, <laughs> that'd be too, by the way. So yeah, yeah. I say, you know, police officers um, are expected to use that quality of force. I won't say amount, but the quality of force, you know, it's the duration, intensity, magnitude, location, frequency, the, the quality of force that immediately and decisively stops the threat right. or overcomes the resistance. Right, right. So a human has to look at another human and evaluate that threat, which is nothing more, you know, Laura Scary is going to yell at me, but it's an educated best guess. <laughs> That's okay. And, she and yells she at all of us. That's okay. Yeah, she said, <laughs> can you use the word judgment, Vaughn? Educated judgment. Yeah, it's, it's an educated judgment. But but in the medical, in the medical world, you know, they call it uh, empiric assessments, right? It's just a clinical assessment. And I looked that word up, so I thought, no one likes the word guess. And sure enough, empiric assessment was defined as an educated guess. <laughs> so, I guess right. that gets it done. Yeah. Uh, well, and and so what's lost is that reasonable people can disagree. And so we're looking for a standard by which we can sort of start to have the limits of reasonableness crystallized, right? We do it through our court cases. We do it through our community interactions. Um, my, you know, the world, according to Von Kleen, believes that we should, we should consider the community's um, expectations of how policing is going to occur in, in that community. However, that community expectation has to be filtered through your civic leaders and ultimately uh, find its way into your policy right. and then ultimately find its way into training. What we can't do is have officers engage in certain training that reflects their policy, that re reflects their law, put them out on the street and then judge it by a community standard that, that wasn't formally, that never formally became part of that, um, part of that policy yeah, so or let's, training. Let me jump in on you to, just to, let's put it to, let's put it to application so the officers understand. I, I assume that you're talking about some of the stuff that we've seen nationally with the legislation that occurs. One of my favorites, and I'm sure it's your favorite, is exhaust all other means before using deadly force or, yeah. or a requirement for de-escalation before some other process. And, and, and I don't know about you, but I've had the opportunity to stand in front of legislatures in the last year and they'll look at me and, and I'll look at them and I'll just say, could you, uh, could you tell me what the hell that means? Exhaust all other means? Like, what is that? What is that? And they go, oh, you know, you're the expert, you know, I'm like, yeah, no, I, I don't know. I, I don't understand. And, and, and the problem is, is if, if Bon, if you and I are standing here and we're having a conversation that we don't understand, how the hell is a is a brand new officer trying to make good force decisions going to understand that? Yeah, well, and I, I have had that conversation um, where people have called and said, hey, we just had this new legislation, not a proposal, or these new attorney general use of force guidelines that have been published. Um, can you help us understand what they mean? And I, I have no idea. <laughs> you know, this, is, this is 30 years now for me, at least being you know, either being controlled by these things or writing them or, and, and I look at them and go, well, that's, you know, I, I, you use preclusion, right? The, the exhaustion of lower levels of force or options. Well, that's not a legal requirement. And I liked how Steve Imes put it in a, in a recent case when he was testifying about proportionality, um, which the same argument can be made for things like preclusion. And that is, 
Those are ideals. Those are goals. Those are aspirational. Those are things that we want our officers to strive for when the circumstances allow to effectively carry that's out the key, right? their mission. Yeah, right? That's the key. And so, yeah, and I like that because the, the opposing side was trying to argue these as legal requirements such that a jury would walk away believing that if an officer doesn't preclude lower level force options, it's somehow unreasonable. Well, that's conflating a Fourth Amendment reasonable standard with a policy violation. Right. And I'm all about policies being more restrictive than the Constitution. Right. They they absolutely can be. And, and in many cases, that's just the that's just your civic leaders and your agency leaders doing that proportionality analysis. Right. They're saying here are the government interests that we want to prioritize. Um, we want to you know. Officers all understand car chase policies is a great example. Right. You can legally chase cars um, and you can, you can, uh, but if you're, if your agency has decided the risk outweighs the reward, so we're going to by policy limit that. Well, if you chase a car, it doesn't suddenly become a fourth amendment violation, right? It becomes a policy violation. Um, and the Supreme court points that stuff out. I mean, you know, some of the biggest cases where officers directly uh, disobeyed orders from their supervisors not to engage in certain levels of force. They do it anyway. And the Supreme Court says, well, it's not unreasonable under the Fourth Amendment. I suspect he's going to have trouble with, with his agency yeah. <laughs> violating the policy right, and right. disobeying a lawful order. But that disobedience and that policy violation doesn't equate necessarily to a constitutional violation. Well, okay, we can have those discussions all day long at academic levels and and have fun with them. But now jurors are being exposed to that completely complicated, really hard to understand stuff. Um, and we have prosecutors who are leading in criminal cases, obviously leading jurors to believe that errors, mistakes, policy violations somehow equate to unreasonable, um, reckless or, or otherwise, uh, you know, maybe negligent conduct. And some of it is negligent. I'll give them that, but, uh, it's a mess. But that's where the tires are not hitting the road. And those are the challenges that that we've seen. You know, listen, I, I give kudos to you. I mean, I find most impressive those that uh, that that like me continue um, to focus on your professionalism and building your professionalism. And and that's why I like to refer people to. You know, there's so much content in this world today, as you know, Vaughn. I mean, everybody and their mother has an opinion. Um, but uh, in the world that we live in, I stress to the officers, you know, focus on where you're getting your content from and and what content is valuable versus just a just somebody's opinion as to it applies. So so uh, I definitely recommend in, uh, on social media and in following your newsletter on for science. And as I, as we wrap up here and one of the things that I'd like to like to use your experience and level for is um, let's assume for all expect we have, you know, officers that don't get to go to our training on this podcast and, and with all that you get to do every day, what would, what advice would you give a young officer, an officer starting out, someone who is, is going out there with those real fears and concerns that we would expect if we were in that situation. And what, what's a bit of knowledge that you've learned over the years or, or guidance that you would give them in your training? Or if you had an opportunity to, to sit down and have a cup of coffee with them, what would you tell them about uh, surviving and doing a good job in this climate? Yeah, it's going to be, 
That's a tough one. I've got three. This wasn't an easy one. I, yeah, I, <laughs> yeah. I wasn't going to make this easy for you, Von. No, I, I hate to say this, but you know, you, this, this is the, you, I think you've defined, you know, well, let's maybe put it this way. We've all heard the, the conversation about warrior and guardian, right? And I, I sort of tongue in cheek say, you know, if you're, if you're confronting me and you're standing in front of me, then, then we have to have the attributes of a warrior who's willing to courageously stand up to evil, right? And, and be competent. You've got to be competent. Um, don't, don't believe the billboard that says anyone can be a police officer if you just are nice enough and, and can communicate well enough. That's true. And those are valuable, valuable skills, but you have to be competent in your ability to defend yourself and others. And that means physically, and that means with your firearms. And you have to train a little bit, a lot, as you know, Chad Lyman likes to say, you've, you've got to take those war, those, those, those warriors strength and attributes in the most ethical sense, very, very seriously. And then the guardian is when you're standing behind me and I'm here to defend you and I'm here to, to shield you, you have to take that seriously. Well, you have to practice your medical skills, your de-escalation, your communication. You're going to have to be all of those things. So I've avoided the, the warrior guardian dichotomy and just said, yeah, sometimes you have to have really strong warrior attributes. Sometimes you have to have strong guardian attributes, however you end up defining that. Yep. But, but having said that, and this is sort of the, it's going to sound like a marketing campaign, but <laughs> right now everyone is diving in. Everyone wants to be an expert in police use of force evaluations and assessments. And I, I will tell this cop, you've got to find your attorney and ensure they are well-versed in human performance under in critical incidents. Force science pulls together all these disciplines from, you know, with thousands of peer reviewed articles from all of our instructors. It's not just the 27 to 30 peer reviewed articles that force science has. We have got to be drawing from all of the disciplines. You need to ensure that you have an attorney who knows that stuff. You need to ensure that your trainers know that stuff. So start to be your own best bodyguard, be your own ally. Um, get the education before the incident. Yeah, now I just that's the piece. That's, that's yeah. the key. And, and the guardian warrior, I always like to say, is our job is guardians, and every once in a while we got to get warrior like. And there's just that's a, right. You know, it, it's not a. I mean, uh, even uh, you know, this podcast is named after the peeling principles and the application. And but uh, you know, the key is is that we have to keep ourselves safe. That's the key. You know. Yeah, and and. You know how those terms were foisted on us as a profession anyway. And so what what I found was, well, why am I even going to, why am I reducing my competencies to someone else's labels? At the end of the day, you have to know how to defend yourself and others, whatever you want to call that, right? right? Whatever competencies those are. And you have to be courageous and you have to be ethical and, and whatever companies. I just read uh, Pressfield's uh, The Warrior Ethos, phenomenal book. It talks about these concepts and really talks about what the warrior ethos is, and it's certainly not one of abuse. It's certainly not one of of, of a preference for violence. It's certainly, you know, uh, so it depends. It, people use these terminology, and and I refuse to to be stuck with. But I, you know, back to your question, um, these officers have to understand the limitations of video themselves. They have to understand the purpose of the interviews that are being conducted after their use of force. They have to they have to hire attorneys who understand the limitations of videos and understand what I'll generically call force science, uh, human performance, human factors concepts as applied to force encounters. 
because it's no longer clear to me that the people we used to rely on to know those things and to take those things seriously um, are finding themselves uh, politically positioned to still do that for the individual right. officers. So right. I, I will grab that officer, sit down with a cup of coffee and start handing them four science news articles. <laughs> I will start having them training courses. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I agree. Critical. Well, I mean, the, the key here is that our philosophy has always been to, you know, the, you know, the, no matter what the issue is, you need to be able to answer the question long before the issue happens. You need to be able to study that application. And so, um, and so I, I, again, Vaughn, I thank you very much for your time and the opportunity and strongly encourage everyone to, uh, to sign up for the forscience.org. Uh, uh, it is .org, right? Yep, forscience.org. Yeah, forscience.org. Um, you know, newsletter and, and get a chance to go to one of the training classes, do so. It's, it's valuable. It's, it's going to make you better in your decision-making because you understand more. Um, and yeah. so I, I thank you for that, Vaughn. I thank you for your time today. Yeah. Hey, but I could say one more thing. Sure. We've got a call for present presentations right now. The 2022 Force Science Conference is coming up in June of 2022. Awesome. Check out the, at the website, you'll see the Force Science Conference link. If, uh, if you're a researcher if you're in the medical field, if you're a police practices guy, trainer, attorney, and you're engaged in work that is advancing the understanding of human performance during force encounters, um, then please consider submitting a proposal to come talk to the audience um, for an hour. Um, we really, we really look forward to seeing what kind of work is going out there across all the disciplines. Um, that's our job, connect dots. Um, so the officers don't have to. So that's I awesome. put that out there. All right. Thanks, Eric. I appreciate it again. It's been an honor to be here with you. I really appreciate all the work you're doing. Uh, again, I know I said it before, great summit. Uh, Thank again, you. it was a Thank wonderful you. summit. Uh, great to great. see everybody. That's the best part. No, absolutely. <laughs> That's the best part. All right. Well, I'll end as I always do. Uh, help those who need your help. Protect those who need your protection. And most importantly, keep yourself and others safe. Thank you. <laughs>